Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning and will turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I need to give you a little bit of background to set up this particular passage that we're going to read this morning. John chapter 14 through 17, those four chapters are typically called Jesus' final discourse, meaning that when we get into chapter 18, we begin to move towards Jesus' betrayal and his arrest and his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. So this is the last time that Jesus has to talk to his disciples. He knows that he's about to die, to go back to his father. He's not going to have a lot more time to give them that last lecture, to give them those last words. So chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 are that last conversation, the final discourse that he has with his disciples. Now, when you get to chapter 17 itself, we call that the great high priestly prayer because Jesus, in the presence of his disciples, is actually praying to God in large measure for them. So chapter 17 is typically divided into three sections. Chapter uh, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying to God for himself. And then in verses 6 through 19 that we'll look at this morning, Jesus is praying for his current disciples. And keep in mind, they're right there with him as he's making this prayer. And then in the last verses, 20 through 26, Jesus prays for his future disciples. Now guess who his future disciples are? I'm looking at some of them this morning. He's praying for you and for me. So let's pick up the text in verse 6, chapter 17. And again, remember, this is Jesus praying for the disciples, his current disciples in that moment, and they are listening to this prayer. Verse 6, I have revealed you, or I have revealed your name, he's praying to God, to those whom you gave me out of the world. He's referencing his disciples. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them, speaking of his disciples. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus now is referencing the betrayal by Judas. One of his disciples that he has protected is actually going to be lost. 
And then skip down to verse 15. My prayer is not, and now Jesus is praying to God still for his disciples. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it sanctify them, or you could translate that, set them apart or make them holy. Set them apart, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified or set apart. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord, and together let us say, thanks be to God. Well, like many parents, we were kind of anxious when our children started visiting and then selecting a college to attend. You know, it's just as hard on parents as it is on their children when the children go through that process. Because we parents are facing the prospects of turning our children loose. We're faced with the prospects of setting them free. We're faced with the prospects of sending them off to some foreign college campus where numerous unsavory characters are sure to ruin the character of our own children. They've been under our care, right? We've watched their every step for 18 years, right? Or so we think. We've watched their every step. And now they won't be under our constant uh, guidance and receiving our constant wisdom every day. How in the world are they going to survive without us, right? So if I take you back 17 years, you'll have a little bit of a sense of the anxiety that I felt as we made this visit to the campus ministry office at Wake Forest University with our son, Philip. We walk in the door that spring afternoon, and there's only one campus minister there. It's Father Xavier, the Catholic campus minister, the Catholic campus priest there at Wake Forest. So we introduce ourselves, and we exchange pleasantries, and then we start asking, uh, those kind of typical questions that prospective parents and students are asking, and especially wanting to know more about campus ministry. And so we ask questions for about 15 minutes. And then Father Xavier, and he had to be a pretty perceptive fella, because I think picking up on a little bit of my anxiety, he looked at me and he said some words that I'll never forget. He said to me that day, he looked me square in the eye. He said, you send your boy to Wake Forest, and I promise you, we'll take good care of him. And I can't begin to tell you what peace kind of overflowed me in that moment. I needed somebody to tell me at the campus in which I may potentially be depositing my child that they were going to take care of my boy. You know, in John chapter 17, we've got a prayer of Jesus. It's a prayer that God would take care of his boys. 
and especially it's a prayer for their unity. Because you see, just like a good parent, Jesus has had his boys, his disciples, in his gaze for three years now. And now he's anticipating his death. He's anticipating his resurrection. He's anticipating his going back to his father. So he knows that very quickly, in a matter of a number of days, he's going to be leaving them in a world that is not so receptive necessarily to his message that he's going to be asking those disciples to bear to that world. So, with the same type of anxiety and worry, perhaps, uncertainty that we parents have when we send our kids off into the world alone for the very first time, Jesus also is worried. And he wants to know that somebody is going to be looking after his boys. They're going to be looking after his disciples. So Jesus prays this prayer for them. And he prays and acknowledges in verse 6 that indeed these disciples are God's gift to him. They were God's before they became his. He prays in verse 6, they were yours, speaking to God. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. And then in verses 7 through 19, Jesus prays for a number of things. He prays for his disciples' protection, even as he has protected them in the world. Jesus prays, but does not ask God to take his disciples out of the world, but he prays that as they remain in the world, that they would be protected from the evil one. Jesus prays that his disciples will be sanctified, that they will be set apart, and then that they will be sent into the world to bear witness to Jesus' redeeming work on the cross. But here's the cornerstone. This is what I think is the most important part of this text. The cornerstone of their protection from the evil one. The cornerstone of their being in the world but not of the world. The cornerstone of their being sanctified or set apart and then sent into the world to bear witness to Jesus. That cornerstone is their unity. It's their oneness together as disciples. Jesus prays in verse 11, protect them by the power of your name. You know, biblically, when you use the word name, you're talking about somebody's reputation somebody's character, somebody's essence. So protect them by the power of your character, God, your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, speaking of Jesus to his Father. And then in verse 21, which we did not read, as Jesus prays for his future disciples, as he prays for you and me, Jesus prays that they all may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That's the cornerstone of all that I think Jesus is praying about here, that his boys, that his disciples would experience a oneness and a unity. So, practically speaking, what does that mean? What does it mean for God's church? What does it mean for God's people? What does it mean for you and me to be one together even as Jesus and God are one. Well, that biblical word uh, for oneness does in, indeed mean to find unity. 
It means to come together in, in a sense of oneness, no doubt about it. But the biblical word for oneness can also mean unique, distinct, different. So when you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, in that famous passage that's called the Shema, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your mind and your strength. When it says, Hear, O hear, hear Israel, the Lord your God is one, what it is saying is that the Lord your God is unique. He is distinct. He is different from all of the other gods around you. So you see that word one can not only mean unity, but it can mean uniqueness, differentness, distinctness. So you see, when Jesus is praying for his church, for his boys, for his disciples to be one, to find unity, it does not necessarily mean that we all have to think alike on every matter that we have to have a uniformity of belief and practice in order to be one. Why is that the case? Because you and I are different. We are unique, just as the Father and the Son are unique. They are the same God, they are the, of the same essence, but they are different expressions of the Godhead. Jesus and His Father are unique. They are different. So you see, our unity is based on our love for Jesus. And it's based on our love for each other. It's rooted in Jesus' love for his Father and his Father's love for him. It's rooted in the unity that they experience. And that unity that you and I have amidst our differentness and our distinctiveness and our uniqueness is a powerful witness to a world that we currently live in that's torn apart by discord and disunity. If people look at us and we come together because we all agree on everything and there's no differences among us, that's not much of a witness. But when God's people stay together and find that oneness amidst our uniqueness and our differences of opinion, that is a powerful witness to a world that has so much discord and disunity around it. I have probably done, I'm just guessing, I'm guessing I've probably done between 1,000 and 1,200 hours of premarital counseling in my ministry. I've married way over 100 couples. Years ago, Leslie and I were doing marriage enrichment retreats. And over a 10-year period of time, we had 100 couples from this church that went on a marriage enrichment retreat. So I've spent a lot of time with couples who are getting ready to get married or couples who have been married for a long time. And what I've discovered through the years is I don't often find couples who agree on everything when it comes to different issues. I don't find couples whose schedules are always alike. One likes to get up early, the other one likes to stay up late. I don't find couples who like the same foods all the time. I don't find couples who like all of the same exact leisure time activities. But miracle of miracles, they manage to stay together amidst their uniqueness and their differentness and their distinctiveness. 
It may shock you to find out that Leslie and I do not agree on everything. That probably shocks you. You're so upset, you're about ready to pull out a tissue and start to cry. We don't agree on everything. Our practices and our habits are not the same in every regard. And yet, this coming August, we will have been married 40 years. The basis for our unity is not thinking alike on every matter. The basis of our unity is not a uniformity of belief or practice that we share. Our unity does not require us to sacrifice our uniqueness and our distinctiveness as people. Our unity as a couple is based on our love for Jesus and our love and our commitment to each other over the last 40 years. And all of that is rooted in the Father and the Son's unity and uniqueness. So you see, our unity and our uniqueness means that we accept and we love each other despite the fact that we may not affirm or approve of everything that other people do or what they believe. Despite the fact that we don't approve or affirm of everything that people do or believe, we still love and accept and agree to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Our unity rooted in Jesus. And what I need to tell you, folks, is that if you're on the lookout for a marriage partner and you think you're going to find someone who's going to agree with you on everything or have the same likes or dislikes or habits, and if you think that you're going to be on the lookout for a church where everybody agrees about every single matter of faith and practice, i got to tell you, you're going to be sorely disappointed. I don't think you're going to find that spouse And I don't think you're going to find that church. If there is a church or a spouse that exists where everybody agrees on everything, let me know that person. I want to nominate them for the Guinness Book of Records. I don't think we're going to find one. So you see, the real question that it boils down to, whether it's in marriage, unity in marriage, or unity and oneness in the life of the church. And keep in mind, the word oneness also means uniqueness. You don't have to sacrifice your uniqueness, distinctiveness to be married to someone, and you don't have to sacrifice it to be a part of God's family. The real question that we have to think about is, will we love our positions more than we love each other? Or will we love each other more than we love our positions? Will we focus on our commonalities or will we choose to focus on our differences? Former First Lady Barbara Bush died a couple weeks ago. And at her funeral down in Texas, there were dignitaries who were present from both sides of the political aisle. Present that day was her husband, former President George H.W. Bush. Present that day was her son and former First Lady, President and Mrs. George W. Bush, George and Laura. Present that day was the man 
who defeated her husband for re-election in 1992, and his wife, President and Mrs. Bill Clinton, Bill and Hillary. And by the way, you might be interested to know, in case you don't know this, that some years later, the Clintons and the Bushes became fast friends. Barbara said about Bill that he found the father in George H.W. Bush that he never had. And whenever they would go on trips together uh, on assignments from the current president or just working on some endeavors, Barbara said Bill always took care of George and watched after him like a father. The man who defeated him for re-election in 1992. Barbara said when we got together we didn't talk politics. We were just family. And present that day also was former President and Mrs. Barack Obama. Barack and Michelle Obama. On that day, isn't it interesting how illness and death bring us together? We can fight and feud with one another, but when death comes, people come together. And that's wrong from the perspective that it ought not to take a death to bring people together. On that day in Texas, at Barbara Bush's funeral, commonalities ran deeper than differences. And what I wonder is when people get fed up with a marriage or they get fed up with the church and they leave and they say I can't be married to you any longer or when they say I can't worship with you any longer I need to leave and go to another church because I can't worship with you I disagree with you on something what in the world do those folks think is going to happen when we get to eternity in heaven is there going to be segregated places in eternity where different people worship based on their differences I don't think so. If you're not interested in worshiping with me or I'm not interested in worship, worshiping with you in this life, God may just say to me in the next life, maybe you're not interested in worshiping my, with my people here. Commonalities run deeper than differences when you take what Jesus talked about with unity for his disciples seriously. I want to leave you with some words this morning. I, I've shared these words with you in the past, but I want to share them again. I want to put them on the screen. They come from the 17th century Puritan English pastor Richard Baxter. Now keep in mind these words were written about 400 years ago, and I think they still hold some truth for us today. Richard Baxter wrote, Above all, See that you are followers of peace and unity both in the church and among yourselves. He who is not a son of peace is not a son of God. All other sins destroy the church as a result. But division and separation demolish it directly. Building the church is simply an orderly joining of materials so what is disjoining but pulling it down? Many doctrinal differences must be tolerated in a church. And why, if not for unity and peace? Therefore, disunion and separation is utterly intolerable. 
do not believe that people are friends of the churches if they try to cure and reform her by cutting her throat. Those who say that no truth must be concealed for the sake of peace usually have as little of the one as of the other. I still differ with many people in several things of considerable moment. And yet, if I should zealously press my opinion on others so as to disturb the peace of the church and separate from my brethren who are contrary-minded, I fear lest I should prove a firebrand in the church. God forbid that I should follow any factious church-rending course, but if so, you must forsake me and not follow me a step. Richard Baxter, 400 years ago, understood that our oneness, our unity, which is modeled after the oneness and the unity that Jesus has with his Father, being distinct expressions of the Godhead, unique expressions, and still having unity. Richard Baxter understands that that unity that we share among our many differences of practice and beliefs and perspectives, it's a powerful witness, folks. It is a powerful witness to a factious and divided nation and world in which we live. For me, that's what this prayer of unity for Jesus' boys is all about. Let's pray together. God, we pray this morning that you would help us to live into this prayer for Jesus' boys. Because you also, Lord, through your Son, prayed for us, the future disciples, that we may be one, that we may experience unity amidst our uniqueness and our differentness. You prayed that we would be one, even as you are one with Jesus. So God, we just ask you this day to give us that spirit, not only in the life of our church, but among other brothers and sisters in Christ, in the different churches and denominations of the world, that we would be reminded that we are all your people and that at the end of the day, it is the commonalities that run much deeper than the differences. Hear our prayer, Lord, as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we're going to sing a hymn of response. The words are on the screen, Christian hearts in love united. And as we sing the hymn this morning, I hope that you'll be reflecting on your relationship with Christ. If you've never begun that relationship, if you've never started that relationship with Jesus, if you've never said yes to him to make him the Savior and the Lord of your life, you could do that today. I'm going to be standing at the front and would welcome hearing you making that kind of decision. Or maybe you've, been, uh, you've explored Oakmont through our Oakmont 101 class, and, and you're ready now to become a part of the Oakmont Church family. We always have people in our services who find it meaningful to go back to the prayer stations 
and to pray with one of our ministers or leave a prayer request or to write a prayer. If you'd like to get up and move and do that, you're welcome to do so. And you saw the video about the Mother's Day offering for Wake Forest Baptist Health in Winston-Salem. And that's one of our Baptist partners that we've supported uh, through the years. And we always take a Mother's Day offering. And you're invited, uh, if you're prepared to do so, to move from where you'll be singing and bring an offering to the two baskets that surround our uh, communion table this morning. If you're not prepared but would like to participate, later we'll receive your gift uh, throughout the month of May. And just know that as you make these gifts, you're making possible uh, ministry to people who truly cannot afford to pay those hospital bills that they incur. So those are the ways that you can respond, and I hope you'll do so as God leads you. Let's stand together. The words will be on the screen. Let's sing together.
Good morning again, friends. It's good to see you today on this Mother's Day. We celebrate the gift and the influence of mothers in our lives. And certainly this morning we celebrate the gift and the influence of Jesus, God's Son, who gave himself up for us. And so it's good to see you for our time of worship today. I hope you'll take the Burgundy Fellowship pads and sign in. It may uh, enable you potentially to uh, match some names and faces of folks who are on your pew who are around you today. We also always welcome those who are worshiping by way of cable channel 7 or are live streaming our service this morning too. Part of what we do in our worship each Sunday is we practice generous giving. We return to God his tithes and our offerings and we do that because truly we are grateful uh, for God so loved the world that he gave. And part of following Jesus is following his character and his actions and he gave himself up for us and so we practice generous giving to fuel our ministries and to truly make us more like Jesus so I want to ask our ushers to come now and as they do I invite you to be generous in the returning of God's tithes and our offerings <laughs> 